on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. Time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhaust. Time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hey everybody and welcome to the F-14 TomCast. Today we're going to be talking about the Forward Air Controller Airborne Mission Set. It showed and proved the versatility of the F-14 and validated the concept of the two-person crew. And picking up the FAC-A mission was another chance to spotlight the professionalism of Tomcat pilots and Rios for enthusiastically embracing this challenging mission. So buckle up, we're going flying! Hi, and welcome back to the F-14 TomCast. I'm Dave Bio-Baronic, former F-14 Rio and Top Gun instructor. I'm one of your co-hosts for today's episode, and we're gonna talk about the Forward Air Controller Airborne, or FAC-A program. I'm gonna throw it over to uh, my co-host, Crunch. Hey, hello everybody. Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch, and I'm your other co-host today. And as you may recall, I too am a former F-14 Top Gun instructor. I was an F-14 pilot for quite a few years. And, uh, you know, we've both been there, done that, and got quite a few hours and a couple of traps. And we're joined today by another gentleman who has been there, done that. Matter of fact, uh, he was instrumental in the implementation of the forward air controller airborne syllabus for the F-14 way back in the mid to late 90s. I would like to present to you today, retired Navy Captain Paul P.K. Averna. Welcome, sir. Thank you, great to be with you guys. Excellent. Hey, P.K., to kick it off, tell us where you're from, how you got commissioned, and uh, how you got into naval aviation. Just, you know, just give the viewers an idea of, uh, of who they're talking to. Sure. So earth-cooled dinosaurs came. I was a Naval Academy graduate, class of 89, uh, went down to flight school in Pensacola and uh, actually was able to get right into the program uh, without too much delay. Went through my primary flight training down at Meridian and then moved over to Beeville, Texas at Chase Field for uh, my intermediate and advanced jet training, got my wings in 91, and then uh, was able to get up to Oceana, I'd selected Tomcats um, after my winging and uh, was able to join the firewing staff waiting to start uh, VF-101 and then uh, joined the fleet in 93 uh, with the uh, world famous Puking Dogs. All right. So cool. I, I forgot. I don't know if we mentioned this before, but you're a pilot. And and I'm saying this because our guests, we, we're switching off pilot or, you know, we have a pretty good mix of uh, pilot Rio guests. So when you came through the, uh, the uh, flight training, flight school, how hard was it to get Tomcats? Were there uh, still a lot of seats or were, were they mostly Hornets or anything like that? There was a, I think there was a good competition for a, a lot of people wanted to get into the tactical platforms, uh, you know, starting off, you know, there are no bad platforms in the Navy, but there are some that are better than others. And the Tomcats certainly right up there. Uh, in fact, uh, for, for me personally, I wanted to fly the Tomcats since I was a little kid. Um, there were people that wanted to go out to super, to fly Hornets, but uh, to me, the big fighter was where it was at. So that was my number one pick, um, and I actually selected Oceana first, and that's what I got uh, out of the class. We had, I think, uh, an EA-6B and um, two or three Tomcat slots and uh, three Hornet slots. That's something that Crunch and I hear a lot. People wanted to fly the Tomcat for uh, – I mean, that's why they got into naval aviation. So, Okay, and then I'm going to ask one more question uh, once you got into the Tomcat community, uh, what 
you said you went to the Pukin Dogs. Did you? Uh, how many fleet tours did you have, and how many Tomcat hours and traps did you have? Sure. So I actually um, had one fleet tour in VF-143, and then I went to Swatsland, uh, the weapons school there, and then I left active duty and joined the reserves. So um, at the time I left, at the end of 98, uh, 90, early 99, I had about uh, 1,600 hours in the Tomcat with about 450-ish traps. Oh, that's a good trap count. So you're six, and your Tomcat hours are mostly uh, B models, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the B was the uh, the one for the Pukin Dogs, but because uh, at the weapons school, we were flying all variants, uh, so I have A, B, and D time. Hey, now, PK, you mentioned something in there that our listeners might not be familiar with, and you mentioned Swatsland. Can you yeah. give us a you know 30,000-foot view? What was Swatsland? What did it stand for? How'd you get there? What did they do? Sure. So Strike, uh, so Strike Weapons and Tactics School Atlantic, or Swatsland, actually was the uh, originally came from the A6 community that was also at NAS Oceana, having their uh, the, the preponderance of their air-to-ground munitions training their instructors. But when the, the Tomcat started dropping bombs, uh, we needed to actually have a way of teaching uh, the tactics, techniques, and procedures on how to employ the platform better in that role. So that's where we had uh, SWATs and uh, join, the Tomcat joined there and then um, eventually when the F-18s moved up, it became the Strike Fighter Weapons and Tactics School. Um, so, Awesome. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you had to go to Top Gun as a student before you went to Swatsland, right? Correct. Yeah. In fact, um, my, my career path to get into Swatsland was interesting in that um, back when I was a, a, a J.O. in the Pukin Dogs, in between our first and second deployments, um, we had that interdeployment training period and uh, we had selected, uh, we, had, we had two slots. We had a slot to go to Top Gun and a slot to go to WTI MOTS 1. And uh, I got picked for the WTI class. And so I went there uh, while one of my squadron mates went to the power projection course at uh, Miramar. And then after I left the Pukin Dogs, I had to get my AQUAL. And then I went out to the first SFTI class out at Fallon. So this is where they had, the, it became a 10-week course, including the air-to-ground stuff. Awesome. Okay, so, so oh, you got to tell us about Crunch. You're going to ask this, I think, but you got to tell us now. Tell us what's WTI and compare it to uh, the Top Gun course. Sure. So uh, MOTS One, the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron One, based out of Yuma, Arizona, is uh, runs uh, twice a year the Weapons and Tactics Instructor Course or WTI. And, and that is actually a very intensive course. Top Gun's a prerequisite for all their tactical aviators, but this is their graduate level uh, course in how to do all six functions of marine aviation, uh, which include how you integrate all the different combat arms together to deliver effects for the combatant commander. And it's a very intensive ground school and mission planning uh, flight syllabus um, uh, awesome flying. And then uh, the, SF, the SFTI class, of course, was building upon the foundations of the air-to-air -air employment, uh, which I think you talked about with Slammer Richardson a couple episodes ago, and then uh, also bringing in the air-to-ground syllabus on how you train. Of course, there's a parallel in the SFTI and the WTI in that they both go back to their squadrons and are responsible for the training or the implementation of the um, training syllabus that is in place to make sure that we have a consistent quality of, uh, I'll say, product for all the aviators. 
So PK, you hit all the uh, good ones. Did you say how long WTI was? How many? Um, I don't remember. It was about six weeks long. It was three weeks of ground school where he didn't sleep much, and then three weeks of pretty intense flying. Okay. Um, got it. I, I had to get waivers to go to the class because they they had the prerequisite for being for a Top Gun, and they really wanted to have a a thousand hour uh, participant. Whereas uh, with with SFTI, I think it was a five hundred hour minimum. Um, but I think I was remembering my third flight uh, during the class. I was leading a 20 plane strike about a thousand miles, all low level up to the Utah range from Yuma. And uh, we were doing low level tanking off of KC 130s. And we had uh, two Tomcats right behind uh, the KC 130. And the wingtips were just about touching. I mean, I could glance over and see the Rio and the other uh, cockpit's eyes real wide as we were sitting back there behind these props bouncing around in the in the turbulence and ground effect below that, below yeah. a thousand feet. That's a, like incredible flying. That is cool. Yeah, there were okay, a lot of I, cigarette hops out of that. I'm going to ask one more preliminary question and then we'll get into the uh, the content. Tell us where PK came from, if you can. Sure. Well, when I was um, originally assigned to uh, the fighter wing, I was waiting to start the FRS class for um, for, for VF-101. And one of the, my jobs there was uh, as the public affairs officer, and I would take uh, distinguished visitors through the simulator and then on the flight line, showing them the airplane and, and giving them a sense of what we do. And in order to be good at that, I figured I needed to have a lot of time in the simulator, uh, at least that was an opportunity to jump in the sim early before I got into the, the FRS and uh, spent a lot of time in there just practicing, training. And uh, one particular time when I was just up by myself, I was uh, doing some uh, basic fire maneuvering against a constructive target out there. And I kept getting uh, misses. I was shooting sidewinders at them and I was in the heart of the launch acceptable region shooting PK miss, PK miss, PK miss. And I got pretty frustrated about the eighth time. And I let them know verbally that I was very unhappy with the performance of the simulator. Well, I didn't realize it, but the fighter wing commander at the time was dragging a couple DVs through and they're listening to me curse uh, extensively. So he, uh, Flats Flaherty, um, told the sim instructor, have PK come see me afterwards. And I got out of the simulator. I had no idea. I, he's like, uh, Commodore wants to see you. And he, the, he looked a little pale. I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem. I get over there. He's like, so what's up with the bad simulators? I'm like, uh, yeah, so <laughs> PK missed. Yeah, and it didn't hurt that my initials, uh, Paul Klaus, and my middle initial, it all kind of fit together, right? Nice. Well, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Hey, let's let's shift gears into what the meat of what we wanted to talk about today. We're going to talk about the FAC A stuff. And I, what I'd like to do is if you could set the, basically from the beginning, beginning to end, just start talking, if you will. But uh, you went to MOTS, you probably did some close air support, some casts, learned some of that, went to Top Gun, and then somehow got involved with the FAC A program and started to introduce it. So walk us through that process. What happened there? Sure. That's a lot. I you know, I, I'm going to back up just a little bit in history because it's important for the audience, I think, to understand how the Navy got into the whole Ford Air Controller Airborne business out of um, out of our community. I mean, we start. I was actually in the first FRS class back in '92, uh, delivering uh, air-to-ground ordnance as part of the uh, syllabus. So, uh, you know, pulling up out at uh, outside um, Yuma and El Centro. 
next to our A6 brethren at the time. And I had four live Mark 83s, a thousand pounders retarded uh, underneath the belly. And they're looking over and they've got the little blue death on their wingtips. Uh, it's like, yeah, we're here growing, growing products. We're representing. But um, that was a, a very um, new thing for the for the community to actually be training our air crew on how to do this in, in a deliberate way. Um, the fleet, of course, was uh, working in parallel with that, learning how to drop uh, the, the weapons. But back in 93, we saw a need case for Ford Air Controller from the sea. You know, and this was following the CNO's tenants at the time, Ford from the sea, being able to deliver effects in a battle space in close proximity to our own troops. So um, the, the CNO syllabus actually was for Ford Air Control was built um, and, and approved back in May of 95. So when I went through, after I got back from WTI, um, where I dropped about half my squadron's non-combat uh, uh, allocation or expenditure allocation in three weeks of flying, um, Brian Brewer, uh, call sign Brew, and Bernie Parker were actually the first aircrew flying FAC A with VF-32 had come back and were now working from NSOC uh, to actually implement the syllabus. So I got picked to be part of that initial cadre that uh, went through the CNO syllabus in 95 to be designated as a FAC A. And then uh, from that, I did a tour uh, deployed over Bosnia and Iraq doing the FAC-A mission. And I came back, went through the SFTI course and then uh, over to Swaziland as an instructor. And eventually I became, I took over from Bernie Parker as the FAC-A program manager for the community um, and then passed that along to uh, Troll Patterson, JJ Patterson, um, before I left. So, from a historical perspective, that's how I got into the FACA business. But um, you know, we we as a community were learning very rapidly, and there's a great history about how we studied closely the different services and how they were implementing their aircrew or aircraft in performing the FACA mission. Now, okay, it, great stuff there. Now, many folks who are watching, listening to us right now, probably don't know what a FACA is. Um, yeah. you know, we, we probably should back up a little bit, you know, talk about the mission sets. What exactly does a FACA do? And there's a pretty long list, you know, I think, yeah. You remember <laughs> some sure. of the things you did. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, to, to start off with a, a, a Ford Air Controller Airborne is an airborne extension of the Terminal Air Control Party or, or TAC P. And, and that is um, an organization that works for the ground commander and coordinates the uh, aerial delivered fires in close proximity to troops in advance of the ground scheme and maneuver. Um, so there is usually a FAC or Ford Air Controller that is in charge of that TACP. We now call them JTACs as well, who are the terminal controllers. JTAC stands for? JTAC is the Joint Terminal Air uh, Terminal Air Controller, JTAC. Okay, thanks. Yep. And so, the FAC is responsible to the battalion commander typically um, to say, hey, here's how you employ aircraft and also uh, and coordinate your fires from aircraft as well as the uh, direct fires from artillery, indirect fires from artillery uh, in support of your ground scheme and maneuver. So the, he's an advisor, but he also uh, has a couple uh, radio men with them typically 
that will be responsible for trying to uh, provide communications across the battle space for all of the different elements that bring those fires to bear. So the airborne extension of that is uh, brings a lot of value to the ground controller in, or the, the fact on the ground. Uh, first off, for no other reason, the perspective is different, right? You're up at uh, 20,000 feet plus, you got a much different view of the earth than they do huddled behind a hill or buried in a foxhole with shots going over their head. So we provide a lot of things about the, the visual reconnaissance of the battle space. We can also use our sensors to highlight where things are out in front of them. Hey, be advised, this is coming up. We can pass along data uh, from our data link uh, capabilities to show them aerial images, whether from UAVs uh, close by or from our own sensors and give them that picture on the ground so that they can make better decisions about how to use fires uh, that they would like. But because we have those, all those abilities of the FAC uh, airborne, we can provide that terminal control for them. Uh, so long as we understand their intent, we can take it from there and deliver fires at a particular time in coordination with their ground scheme and maneuver. Um, we can do artillery air spotting, and when we would do uh, naval surface fire support, you know, five-inch guns, 76-millimeter guns, we could actually direct that those fires. Um, and then, we, you know, if nothing else, it was a radio relay function because of line of sight. We could provide them better uh, connectivity sometimes from where they were. But that's the real role of a FAC-A. Yeah, and there's a, there's an awful lot to it, and uh, just you know, wait uh, for a little perspective for everybody else. You know, I I was a fac A. I was a uh, I I was not. Uh, when did I start doing fac A? I don't know, ninety eight, something like that, whatever it was. Um, so I was a little bit behind you. You were you were one of my instructors just as you were turning over a troll there, and you know, you look back on that time, and I remember at the time. You know, FAC-A was bombing for fighter guys, right? Because yeah. it, it was so exciting. It was so involved because not only are you, you know, you're not just rolling in on a target and throwing a mark down and say, hey, from the mark, North 50, you know, fire for effect. You, you, you know, there's so much more to it to, you know, you're managing the battle space. I mean, we used to sit there and uh, I don't know if you if if you were doing this, but when we were doing it, we would go out with grease pencils and actually write on the canopy in the daytime. And you would have, you'd have everybody stacked up. You're like, all right, over here at Point Echo, we got five aircraft stacked up at these different altitudes. We got two F-16s over here, a couple A-10s over there. We got two, two Hornets over there. What do we got? We got, uh, you know, some Mark 82s and we got some rockets. What do we need on here right now? And so you're managing all this. And oh, by the way, somebody comes up and says, Hey, I only got 23 minutes of playtime left and, uh, I need to get into the target and egress. Right. And you're like, and that's not on my plan. And then you're working in some artillery and a mortar, and then you're you're hitting a mark, and then from the mark you're trying to do that. Oh, by the way, your raw gear's lighting off because you're getting shot at, and it was just so exciting. And I want to say that because like the way you just described it, it's like yeah, that's what we did. But if you get into the airplane, I mean, you would get done with that, and you're like, <gasps> you just land and be ex absolutely exhausted and thrilled all at the same time. PK yeah, man, it sounds like you're sitting up there at 80,000 feet, you know, just smoking a cigarette, having a soda and air conditioning and all that. But I, I got to go along with what Crunch said. I mean, I, I never did the FAC A mission, but uh, late in my career, I heard uh, a couple of our JOs going through FAC A quals in uh, Fallon. And uh, I'm sitting there. I, I was so damn proud of these guys because, I mean, I could just hear they were managing all this information and i was i was just proud of them 
um, I, I was a skipper and they were in my squadron. I'd go like, God, those guys are great. But then the other thing is that another time I got into a jet uh, that had been used for FAC A and these were all training practice missions and nobody cleaned the canopy. <laughs> and and I, I mean, it didn't bother me because it's, it's like, you know, this is what we're doing. But I saw what Crunch is talking about, just the incredible, it's like hieroglyphics almost, just covering the it's side of the tax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it gave me a real appreciation for the mission. Um, I mean, I don't know where we're going with that. Okay, so wait a minute. So, so was it uh, on a FAC-A mission, were both the pilot and the Rio qualified FAC-As? And did you guys... Uh, did you have formal coordination about who's going to do what, or did it just kind of emerge? Yeah, well, by design, I mean, the Tomcat's a great platform for FAC-A for a lot of reasons. Um, one is a bigger airplane inside the cockpit. As, I mean, one of the reasons that you were, we were just talking right. about grease pencils all in the canopy, you can actually write down everything that you need to do. And because you can look through the canopy at the ground, you're not really focused on the, that grease pencil stuff. Uh, you can look right past it. But um, it, the, the, the airplane evolved over time, of course, not only the ability to deliver ordnance, um, but with Lantern as a targeting sensor, as well as a reconnaissance sensor. Um, we actually you know, went to night vision uh, capable cockpits. We uh, got everything greened in the cockpit um, so that you could fly under goggles. Uh, we brought the ISLID, the handheld one watt IR laser, so that you could actually literally and, and we let the Rios do that because pilots hands fold their stick and stuff. And, you know, if they blind the Rio in the back with those, with that one watt laser, uh, we can still get home. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a, a fun time getting that qualified for us. The, so there was a variety of tools that we could bring to bear, but it was the, the loiter time. We had a lot of gas by comparison to most of our other uh, playmates that were out there, uh, particularly from the carrier. Um, and then because we had two radios and two people that could talk on a radio, we could be talking to different people at the same time, working through coordination. And you learned a lot during the training about how you were able to hotwire the system to get information that was relevant for the folks on the ground to deliver timely effects. You know, I could, uh, there, there, I had a couple of comments, that, you know, Crunch, you were mentioning about and writing on the canopy. I mean, you could always pick out a FAC-A crew about to walk for a mission for a couple reasons. Number one, they had a red and a gr uh, black uh, grease pencil in their little flight suit pocket. Um, the pilot was carrying a nav bag full of charts and um, their bandanas that they had clipped to their D-rings were all filthy with grease pencil writing from smearing off the canopies all the time. So um, yeah, we, we actually, uh, that, that was a quick, convenient way, but it was the FAC-A flying club. You had 15% of the air crew that were getting 70 hours a month doing most of the missions when you were deployed. Um, th that was because it was a critical juncture. You were facilitating so much activity on the ground, uh, the effects on the ground, and your all your airwing brethren would come follow you because that's where the action was going to be. They were going to get you in and out of the target area, deliver your weapons, and get you back pointed to the carrier safely, uh, and doing all the coordination uh, for suppression of fires, IDing targets, things like that. So yeah, they were exhilarating missions. Um, a lot of fun and a lot of responsibility on fairly junior guys. When you when you think about it, to your point earlier, bio about uh, how well those junior crews were performing. This was essentially like doing a strike mission 
every five to seven minutes, ad hoc, uh, let's go. And um, being able to put them together on the fly. And you're responsible. Yeah, you own the bombs for the I ground. Mean, this, this is one great thing about naval aviation. I, I guess uh, I guess the other services are like this, but naval aviation takes relatively junior people, uh, gives them the training, and then gives them incredible responsibility. And both you guys have said it was exciting. I mean, because when you're when you're that age, and you've been trained and you've got you know experience, you're going like I can do this, and you get up and do it, and it's like, okay. We're getting we're we're about to get into the real world, I think. So, Crunch, let me ask one more background question. And uh, and you guys were talking about it a little bit. Most of my Tomcat time was in the '80s, and in the '80s, Tomcat was strictly air to air. And you know, we were frankly, you know, parochial, dismissive of of the strike community. So uh, when you had to uh, stand up the Fac A training, was there pushback? Uh, by the time you came around to, to, to uh, start the training, had people embraced, embraced all the air to ground missions? What, what did you find about that? Well, I, actually, I think the, the, the best precursors to the FACA program that really socialized the air to ground business for our community was our affiliation with MOTS1. I mean, we as a community embraced learning from the WTI course. We sent crews through WTI um, and, and they came back to our squadrons with graduate level employment and organization of how to apply uh, combat power, um, not just in a dedicated strike profile, which was our typical bread and butter air wing integrated training that we would do when it was NSOC back at Fallon. Um, this was all about understanding the six functions of marine air and how there's really seven uh, related functions in naval aviation uh, on, on how to apply power and how to f support uh, together the ground scheme maneuver. And ultimately, that's where the effects are taking place. The last 20, 25 years, there's really been no uh, challenge to our air superiority capability. And so that, you know, you were, as I think you, you talked about in the Slammer Richardson interview, um, back in the early 90s, you know, the realization was, hey, we got to get in this business. It's not nobody's coming up to challenge us when we light off the AUG-9 or the APG-71. I mean, they're turning tail and running away from us because they know we're up there. So how are we going to uh, deliver value off the flight deck for all the JP-5 we want to consume? And uh, the WTI program, when you saw guys that were wearing the Screaming Eagle uh, patch, you know, that was a symbol for your sister services, particularly the Marine Corps out in theater, it's like these guys know what they're doing. And that really helped the community writ large. And then because of that, the FACA syllabus, we modeled that in large measure to what they were doing for the F-18D community in uh, the Marine Corps. But we also looked at what the F-16 community was doing in Arizona, the tacos down there. We were looking at what they were doing in Eglin with the A-10s uh, and how they were doing single seat FACA missions so that we were able to combine best of breed in developing the syllabus. And so for that reason, I think there was a, a um, generally speaking, we didn't really get much pushback. I think where we did get pushback from, uh, I don't even call it old school. I, I just say from folks that were worried about how much time and NCA we were focusing on from a single mission perspective for a squadron that had to go deploy was that this was a nine flight syllabus and there were no waivers. 
You weren't going to get a, 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 a rubber stamp going through the program. You had to actually go do the work. And it wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't just your platform. You had to have all the supporting cast to uh, provide in this individual flight events or else you weren't going to get the qual. And typically those, those flight events, you might be, if I remember event one was like a single plane controlling artillery from the air. So you had to coordinate that we'd fly down to Camp Lejeune or something like that. And maybe there was other aircraft there, but not only us, but also the instructors are airborne at the same time in another airplane doing it. And then you go out and you're going to do low threat. And so you need two FAC A's in two airplanes, plus all of the strikers and they need ordnance and you need the weather and you need the range. And boom, you just burned all of this gas and ah, oh, crunch. That, that just, that wasn't good enough. You need to go do it again. And so guess what? Now you got to do the whole thing again, or you go down the line and all these strikers are lined up and now they're just going to go out and drop their bombs without a fact a because the fact that maybe the instructor went down. I mean, you never know. It was so complicated and required so much overhead. It took a long time to go through the syllabus. I remember that even when it was a priority for the squadron, it took a long time. I'm going to throw in another term definition then I'll, I'll surrender the uh, microphone to you crunch, but you said NCEA non-combat expenditure allocation. I oh, mean, back yeah. in the day that they said, okay, each squadron gets, you know, uh, maybe three Phoenix per year and six Sparrows and tw tw 20 Sidewinders or whatever. And each squadron got all that, plus, you know, 20 millimeter and chaff and flares. And then when air to ground came along, they added air to ground. And the squad, the, the wing assigns that for every squadron. And so as the, for FAC A training, obviously it took a big portion of that. And maybe the wing hadn't adjusted yet and said, you know what, all these guys are doing FAC A, we need to bump up their NCEA for certain types of ordnance. And, and, and sometimes that was taken from another squadron, you know, and that other squadron is sad. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it happens, uh, but Hey, I, I, I certainly, I've got a whole bunch of notes here. So PK, as you're talking, there's, there's gold coming out here and I know our listeners are going, well, what about that? You mentioned Bosnia. Well, what about Hornets? And what about this? Uh, I have these down here and I have like so many follow-up questions that oh. I'm just going to start right there. It's not really a coherent thought, but I didn't want to interrupt you. So I'm just going to start ripping off a couple of questions here that came to mind. You mentioned, uh, first off, you talked about modeling after the single seat community of the A-10 and the Viper. And then you talked about modeling off of the two seat F-18D community in the Marine Corps. Uh, pluses and minus, goods, goods and others, compare and contrast Tomcat versus those. Sure. So let's start from the mission and what it takes to do an individual mission. You mentioned low threat versus, you know, higher threat uh, type of control. And, and the nine flight syllabus that we used was designed to kind of walk you through all of these and where you would start seeing um, the breakdown in a single seat FAC A platform to do those missions was really in the higher threat environments because the detailed coordination of fires included the suppression of enemy air defenses that would coincide with your uh, strikers coming into the picture. And in fact, you as well as the forward air controller airborne, because as we started off, I think, uh, you know, the, the striker doesn't own the bomb. That was a, that was a challenge that we had to break uh, the mindset of for the air crew in the air wing when we first started flying um, uh, FAC A mission. You know, they, they really, their, their understanding of close air support 
was, was very limited uh, in, in workups. But so who owns the, guy the bomb? The, yeah, the guy on the ground owns the bomb. And in okay. our case, the person that clears them hot to release, there's only one person on the radio that gets to say cleared. That's either the, hang on, I'll say two, the ground fact or the fact A, okay? You never say, I'm cleared to release. You know, that's a, that, that's a taboo thing. But it's because you have to actually position your airplane as the FAC A to confirm that the aircraft delivering the weapon is going to actually have it fly to the point of impact that you need it to fly to and not be pointed or cross a line where your own troops are. I mean, this is all done in close proximity to our own troops. So by that nature, alignment in the unguided munition delivery meant that you were flying essentially perpendicular to the axis of delivery underneath them, assessing their nose position to make sure that that weapon wasn't going to be uh, coming off in the, and going the wrong direction. Obviously with GPS weapons and laser guided weapons, we have a little bit of a different um, clearing process, but nonetheless, philosophically, um, it goes back to that's where it would start to break down, I think, for single seat. You couldn't manage the stack, manage all of the other resources needed for those higher end threat scenarios as well. And so you would have a secondary wingman trying to help you with some of those functions um, if they were trained. And so then you'd have two fat Ks in two single seat airplanes working together to effectively do what we were doing in a single uh, airplane. And of course, we also had the benefit too, because we had two outside radios and we had that third radio called the inner cockpit uh, communication system, ICS, to say, hey, I need you to go do this or, or hey, I'm picking up this or I'm calling these guys. So that I think is the real breakdown between single seat and, 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 and dual seat. And for the Navy, for, for the um, at least FAC A from the sea, we focused on a two seat platform to be able to do that. So after the, the after the Tomcats retired, we we pushed that mission over to the F-18Fs. Mm-hmm. And and so the F-18D mm-hmm. compared to the F-14, and then you bring up the F-18F. How how are they doing it nowadays? I I, I have not done it in the F. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean the 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 um the cool part is that the F is a lot bigger than the the D uh, in terms of you know fuel as well as the size of the cockpit. You got a little bit more room in there. But you got a lot of cool toys to play with, too, that will help you in identifying targets, marking targets, passing data along a lot of high performance data link uh, capabilities there, which uh, were just not available to the earlier platforms. Um, the, the F-18D was a well-integrated cockpit. I mean, it took time for the, uh, the Tomcat to get there for the strike mission or the delivery of weapons uh, from, the, from the platform to the ground. Yeah, it makes sense. That's that's a that's a lot of good stuff. Okay, so comparing F fourteen to F eighteen D, it's fair to say the F fourteen just longer legs, right? Better longer legs, time. faster. Um, uh, I mean, we could we could uh, go uh, get into a target area pretty quick and and back out again, particularly in the Bs and Ds um, in the higher threat uh, cast environment. We, we had a little more flexibility in terms of timeline management because we had the extra speed. Um, but with that speed, we also weren't burning as fast, um, typically, as, as, as the Ds were. Um, but the, the F-18Ds, it, was the, it, it really comes down to the air crew um, and how well they're trained at the mission. The, the benefit the Marines have is the, their FAC-As are typically ground FACs 
for a unit on a disassociated tour. Uh, so they also have that ground perspective that we don't get when we're doing our disassociated tours, unless there was a very few of us that went to uh, TACP school as an instructor, as an example, uh, after mm -hmm. we flew uh, the mission airborne. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Crunch. Over to you. I've been no, no, I'm letting you. You got all your notes. I'm. Uh, I'm letting you continue. Go ahead. Uh, all right. I'm, all right, I'm cool. enjoying these stories, PK. This is uh, incredible. All right. So, PK. So, you also mentioned that next on my list here is you talked about uh, flying Bosnia as a FAC A. Can you talk some real world stories, actual implementation of the mission in the real world, and did you? Uh, Talk us through. Give us some. Give some real world history on it. Sure. So uh, in in ninety uh, six, uh, the 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 ground situation in Bosnia was changing rapidly. Um, and, and in in the early part of our deployment, things were pretty hot on the ground, in terms of the the, the Serbs um, making some incursions and and actually um, making it pretty difficult for the. Um, for the Bosnians. So what I, what I took away from that early on was there was a threat, a higher threat uh, from potential surface to air systems that were influential in the, in the region. Um, and so we were doing a lot of coordination of standby stuff. In other words, stacking up capability in case the ground needed it. Um, and in one mission in particular, there was a, there was a weather layer, right about 2000 feet. And um, the, the NATO forces had actually surrounded a ammo depot that was being held by the Serbs um, that they were refusing to let it go. And it was getting pretty tense. They were uh, pointing weapons at each other and yelling. And so when we checked in on station, uh, the, the, the ground pack said, hey, um, we need to show a force here uh, to let them know that we're, we're serious. And so one of the features of, of, of doing the FAC-A mission is um, when you're on, on the flight deck starting up, you know, as you're buckling into the airplane, your radios are on and, and you're actually getting updates from the direct air support center, from the, the, the coalition forces on the ground, updating the understanding of where things are, where the hotspots are, getting that real-time intel since you've got your intel brief maybe an hour and uh, half before before you were manning up the jet. So we're on the radios actively listening while we're starting up and taxiing into the cats and launching and uh, getting our initial gas going uh, feet dry. So we're already aware of what's happening. But um, a, a lot of our uh, strike brethren who are uh, going to join us, you know, we're, we're getting them stacked up. It became very apparent that we didn't have the time to actually set up a dedicated nine line kind of show a force mission. So I ended up uh, peeling off and, and running down below the weather and thumping the uh, ammo depot uh, in full blower and then reefed back up into the clouds where they could see the weapons on the airplane underneath it. And they gave up their guns right then. Um, but that was just because we happened to be there and, and, and we're building situational awareness. I'm looking at my one to 50 while they're talking about where they are and I'm, uh, we're marking that down. And back then in the in the bees, we didn't have moving map uh, capability. We had the little Garmin handhelds and we had our one to 50 charts. And so with, you know, without that ground reference visually because of the cloud layers, it's not until you pop down below it and 
you know, all that training about how to orient rapidly, uh, where the river bend is, okay, here they are, okay, and, and being able to execute quickly and then pop back up. That was just a natural extension of all the, all the training that we had done. Flashback, because we made multiple ditch transits that tour. Um, uh, Suez Canal. Through time, the Suez Canal, yep. Uh, back over to Iraq because uh, Saddam was was being anxious. Um, we uh, the the last time I went over in Bosnia at the end of that '96 cruise, things had basically gone away as a, as a uh, as a threat, and so uh, peace was being a, a bro- breaking out everywhere. And I ended up doing a, a survey of a range, a potential range space for close air support training in Bosnia. So now I'm down at you know 500 feet looking around at uh, well this would be a good avenue of access. So doing those airborne surveys for NATO that's that was another thing that we did because we had the FAC A training. Wow, that's crazy. So interesting story you just told there where you pop below the clouds and and head on in just to give everybody a little perspective. If there's a cloud layer below you, you don't know where the ground is necessarily. And it's pretty mountainous over there. You know, I've flown over there. There's some beautiful terrain, but it's really stinking mountainous. And I don't know, did you drop down over the water and then impress in or? No, I came down over land um, and and basically had figured out where I was going to be able to make a pretty safe entrance to get in onto the river and and, and blast in that way. A, A pretty safe. Yeah. Pretty safe. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty bold. That, okay, that's a very so bold move. Sticking with that uh, little vignette, uh, when you said you thumped them, were you, did you just give them a low, high speed pass, or were you supersonic? Because because on the ground, a, an actual supersonic pass is much more impressive than. Yeah, I was I, I was pretty much at the number. Um, at least part of my airplane was at the number. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, okay, so so uh, moving from uh, just you know um, show of force uh, as a fac A, you carried a different ordnance than uh, than most Tomcats did. Uh, what were some of the uh, ordnance that you used to uh, mark targets uh, and and tell the guys where to drop, whatever? Sure. So did you carry well, rockets or WP or? We didn't carry rockets. Um, okay. They they were kind of a no no on the boat. Um, for hero purposes, um, hero but, uh, is a high energy radiation or something like that effect on ordnance. Yep, nice, exactly. nice, nice. Yeah. Well done with the acronyms tonight, Joe. Yeah, awesome. I tell you what, both of you guys, I am really impressed with both of you guys because you're pulling stuff out. I'm like, ooh, ooh, you threw out, you know, to, I'm trying to earn my place on the team, you know. So, okay, so let's get back to the uh. So a great a great mark on the deck is a a, a high explosive, okay. From, from that from that bomb that just went off, uh, okay. two units of measure north. That's your target, okay. And and so we'll carry four of those shapes on, on the under the belly of the Tomcat. Five hundred um, pounders or five hundred pounders is plenty. I mean, yeah. anything bigger is is really now you're starting to potentially impact because again close proximity to own troops uh frag patterns things like that and it just wasn't needed you, you will see from the air if you're visually looking into a target area a high a, a 500 pound bomb going off compared to most of the artillery shells the 155s things like that they are but the best marks of them are, are to use not the ones on your own airplane but others that are out there so artillery 
is a great mark. If I can get a mark on the deck for air crew to then orient to, um, and if I can, and actually if, uh, those marks can be HE, but normally we like to see Willie Pete because it's a nice white plume that pops up there in the battle space. But fired um, by artillery. Interesting. Okay. Fired by artillery. Yep. Yep. Um, and LGB is a is an even better mark. If I can uh, designate a target for um, a, a guy that's carrying an LGB, I'll put it right where I know that that it needs to go and deliver the effect right there. So I don't necessarily need to mark the target per se. But if I have like at nighttime, um, I might use a loom to uh, illuminate the target area for those that are unaided to participate with us. But under NVGs, um, I, I can use my islid. I can mark the target from 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 above, and people on goggles will see the thing. Oh, look, there it is. Um, or I'll use my laser designator, and for somebody carrying a a, a laser uh, um, a pod, uh, like on on the super on the Hornets, they were they were carrying their Nighthawk pods. They could actually see where I was uh, marking the target. So I can do that without having to actually do the original, what we call low threat talk on kind of, of cast. A mark though can be some ground feature that we all orient around. So um, an airfield, you know, that that's a great one because you've got orientation and units of measure that you can get people's eyes into the specific area that you're looking for. And even though they can't see maybe a tank under camouflage, you can get them to where they need to put the effect and, and then, the effect will go there. Uh, so they don't need to visually see it themselves. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, they, they're, they're, you, you brought a lot of tools to the, to the table and you learned during the syllabus to learn during doing this stuff that every platform had some pretty cool stuff associated with them that you could use in, in support of the mission. Um, one time I was controlling a B1 uh, out at Fallon during a training event, and and it, uh, this was when when uh, it's like, well, what, how would you use a B1 uh, at range? Well, from from where they are going to be camped out, they can put a SAR map into the area or, or, or synthetic aperture radar image of the area, and they can help you. Know, uh, they can look into the area, and you can have them tell you what they see, and that helps provide that aerial reconnaissance while you're standing off. And that is important for the the higher threat scenarios. We used to call it, you know medium uh, uh, medium threat cast was where you're going to be running in nine lines. You couldn't stay in the local area because of surface to air uh, missiles or uh, or AAA that might be there. But high threat, you are going to have to have su uh, suppression of any air defenses, and it was lethal for you to be exposed more than a couple seconds in the area. So. The higher the threat, uh, close air support work that you had to do, um, the more coordination, the more time it would take to get ordnance on target. Um, and so those whole ideas of getting people to see the same target, whether it was the guys on the ground, you or you and your aerial delivery or, of effects to, to make sure that that target correlation happened, that was the most important thing that you could do. So marking was one way of doing that. Awesome. Cool. Now you, you did bring something up just to, to clarify. You talked about uh, Willie Pete, that's white phosphorus. Yep. So you've an artillery gun might shoot uh, a couple different types of shells. One of white phosphorus, which creates this big giant white cloud. And I understand it's pretty, you know, it's pretty hot and 
burns people up if you hit it. It's you know pretty pretty bad, <laughs> uh, as opposed to an HE high explosive which just goes boom. So a couple of different things. Uh, you talked about a loom, and talk about what what is an loom and where do you, where do you get one from? Well, so there's artillery illumination that can come up, or we used to have um, Lou twos. Um, yes, that, that's right. Yep. So those were parachute delivered. Um, you know, we we would there were small canisters that uh, when they're pushed off of your um, uh, bomb rail, the I, the ITER, the improved uh, now you're triple need, ejector rack. Yeah, the ejector rack. There you go, triple ejector rack. Um, so uh, in lieu of the Mark seventy six practice bombs at night, we would have six Lu twos and then uh, six uh, Mark seventy sixes on those four racks underneath the aircraft. So. 12 rounds to, to play with for marking or facilitating the uh, training. But the, the, when you drop the, uh, an alum, you know, they're, they're, we've learned how to make them reliable um, in terms of loading. There was a while there where we were would have them dropped and, and we wouldn't get the thing to fire. Uh, but we, we figured all that out. Um, and there's a, a, a window, I'll, I'll say, uh, because you have to account for the wind and how long it burns about the, your, your, your illumination run on how you had to plan that to make sure that it would be over the actual target area that you would need it to. Instead That's of, right. Uh, so you'd have to go, all right, the prevailing wind, I'm going to drop this at 5,000 feet and the prevailing winds are this, it's going to take this long to drop yep. and windage, drop it here. And then you drop it and then somebody would roll in and they're like, I don't see the target. You're like, yeah. cause I missed the spot with the loo too. Yeah. And everybody's all off and they got to go reset and you got to do it again. That yep. was, that was a challenge. And of course that's at night, right? Yep. And a, a Lou too. And that's great when people are, as you referred to it, unaided, they don't have goggles on, but if you do have goggles, um, you know, you mentioned the Islid, which is an IR pointer. And as I recall, that thing looked like one of those big giant mag light flashlights from back in the day. And you had like a suction cup, you would slap it onto the canopy and the Rio's back there. He's moving it around. And we even had eye protection that we put on in case there was like a laser flash through the, through the cockpit, which every once in a while you would see like a flash come up the glass, but uh, you'd put those, those little goggles on. And I remember you could use those as an, uh, a pointer and you could move them around, but you, that is lid, you could not see it on your FLIR, but if you had a FLIR, the floor, you know, um, a targeting pod, like a lantern, you could designate a target, but you wouldn't be able to see that with your goggles. You could only see it on somebody else's targeting pod. So you had these two tools that like worked in different spectrums and not everything could see it. And meanwhile, then you got visual. There were so many different tools, as you said, and, and you had to figure out, you're like, well, here comes bio and his F-16 and he's got goggles. So I'm going to use an islet and here comes this, you know. I don't know. Here comes a strike eagle who's got uh, something else. All right, we'll just designate him with our laser. Yeah. Oh, by the way, if you're designating for them, because you talked about designating with a laser, you can use that laser to get somebody else's eyes on a target, or you could designate yourself and have them drop on your laser code. Just a matter of that one's a little bit more complicated. Uh, didn't, I mean, they yeah. have, didn't they have to dial in the code or something like that? Yep. As part of your nine line procedures, they had to, they had to read back the code that they were supposed to have for their weapon mm -hmm. um, so that uh, they would be guided off of the correct laser that might be out uh, you know, hot you know, when they came in to release their weapon. And you also had to, you also had to worry about alignment because at the time that they drop, you have to be in the right position, not only to clear them hot, but also to have your designator on the right spot. 
um, and you had to worry about clouds moving across and you had to maintain the designation through the time of fall and you had to make sure you didn't get to a point where there was something called, you know, you, you had to watch out for things like the pendulum effect where it would go over the other side and get masked or, or worse yet, you know, in the F-14, the pod was on the uh, right-hand side. And if you suddenly like, basically you could mask that laser with your own airplane as you're doing a turn. And so sometimes you'd be flying in and you're trying to get this thing lased and you're realizing that you can't go this much further. There's like a threat over here or whatever the case is. And you're trying to turn. And before you know it, you're just, you're stand, you're like in this right wing down full left rudder, trying to keep the airplane going this way. You're like, come on, man, four more seconds. And the Rio's yelling at you like, come on, crunch, stop it. You need to get the laser on there. I'm trying, I'm trying. It was always a, it was always a challenge. Bio's laughing because you. I'm telling you what, man. My Rios used to yell at me all the time because they're like, "Don't you mask the laser again? Don't you mask it?" I, I just didn't do that mission that much, and um, I guess I missed it. Oh, I mean, although the flying was just—it just sounds great. You know, it's challenging, but you practice and train and everything, and you go out and do it, and it's. And we're going to we're quoting uh, Slammer again, but I watched Slammer's interview again. And he said, when you go out and you do it right, you come back and you go, that was good, you know, and that's 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 true. That's yeah. true. I, I tell you what, being a, being an instructor, um, not only being able to do the mission, but that to teach the mission and to drive the scenarios for the students so that they are getting realistic training and meeting the learning objectives. I mean, that is next level stuff. And uh, it, it was all it was awesome to be part of that team that was able to train all of our, our, our FAC A's. By the end of 99, we had over 150 FAC A called aircrew. Um, wow, that's impressive. That is yeah. amazing. OK, so were there this is a, uh, you know, dirty laundry question, but were there any uh, crews that came through that you guys said, sorry, you can't do it? Or by the time someone gets to Tomcats and gets to that level, you could make them a FAC A. Yeah, but because of the minimum requirement, I think it was 500 hours uh, minimum. You had to have the COs uh, sign off, but it was also a division league qual. Yeah, and so it's a pretty uh, capable aviator by the time they walk into your schoolhouse. Okay, exactly. And from that point, I mean, it is a building block approach. We, we don't throw them in, as Crunch was describing, the fire of trying to do a night FAC A mission under high threat with, uh, with a lantern pod and, and, you know, some of the fundamentals of not masking while you're trying to illuminate a target in the right time and being in the right space. Um, that advanced stuff comes as a result of going through a building block approach. And it starts off, you know, the very first flight that we do is a low threat cast control where we're doing talk-ons. We're both yeah. orbiting the target area, and we are uh, essentially learning how to communicate. But on the way to the target area, we are also exercising all of the connectivity on how we connect with the ground and, and get the information so that we're ready to participate in the mission. All of that has to be simulated going into the, going into the target range. So we might transit uh, 50, 100 miles to get to a local training range where we'll do the mission uh, or do that uh, initial uh, talk on mission. But we are exercising the students uh, to the brain capacity because we're having them check in with all of the agencies they would have to check in with before they got to the target area to get the threat briefs. And that um, uh, that building of situational awareness is a part of the mission. Um, 
And for the instructors, we're simulating all these different agencies. And typically we'd use different voice like accents and um, to try to make it authentic. Uh, there was one uh, mission where we had, uh, an, uh, we were simulating an EA6B crew bringing in the seed support for um, a high threat environment. And the air crew came back and they're like, where was the EA6B? It's like, well, no, it was just a voice. Dude, oh, was, you did it. All right. Good yeah. job. Yeah. So, um, but, but That's knowing, a good simulation. How employ, yeah, knowing how they employ and, and, and the, the, uh, what they need to be able to support you in your mission, those were all parts of learning. So, yeah, we put it all together uh, by the time they got through their, their grad hop. And uh, those tended to be pretty cool because you'd bring in all these guest players, you'd bring in a, Apaches from the Air National Guard out of Raleigh. You'd bring in A-10s. You'd bring in uh, F-16s from Shaw. You'd bring in Hornets if they were available from D the D.C. Uh, Reserve Hornet Squadron up there because they needed to do close air support training. Uh, mentioned the B-1 uh, from, from when we were doing the, the calls out at Fallon. So those are a variety of players and you just didn't know. It sort of kind of mirrored the grad hop, the 1v1 grad hop that uh, you guys were talking about. Uh, before uh, for 1v1 at Top Gun. I mean, yep. that, that was uh, that was varsity stuff. That's right. You bring that up. And, and if I'm not mistaken, as I think back, I'd forgotten about this till you just mentioned it. You would walk on your flight and you would say, here are my planned strikers for today. I would, I'm expecting the following things. I'm, I'm going to put them, stack them here. Here's their playtime. And you show up and you're expecting all this stuff. And all of a sudden somebody checks in and they say, Hey, good afternoon. This is uh, you know, Ranger two, four flight of four Apaches. We're checking in at 500 feet. And you're like, what the heck? Who, who are you? And where did you come from? And yeah. how am I going to use you today? And, and then you're like, I don't know what just happened. And yeah. the whole thing blow up. And, and then you guys as the instructors would check in and go, well, it sounds like the weather over there at Shaw's, uh, nobody can make it today. And you're like, oh no, it's completely <laughs> changed. And of course that was completely the plan from the beginning. Right. You would give us this bogus plan and then it will blow up on the grad hop. And if I remember right, I actually think, um, if I can remember, I got a, a phone debrief with one of the strikers, at least from one of my things, where they called up and I go, hey, what do you have for us? You know, let, let me know. And uh, they were mad at us. And they were mad because they showed up and like we didn't use them right away. And like there was probably somebody who went home with their ordinance because they never got a chance to get in because we never fit them in. And they're like, what the hell are you bringing us down there for if you're not going to use us? And we're like, yeah, so, sorry, I think I messed up. <laughs> we, we apologize. It was there was there was some pretty that was not intentional for sure. But uh, it was certain it was a tough, tough experience. It was very rewarding. There we go. Um, <laughs> That's how you learn. Hey, so, so wait, wait, wait. Before we get away from this, PK, you worked with all the services and a lot yeah. of different and probably some foreign forces. Did anybody love the Tomcat, hate the Tomcat as the FAC-8 platform? I mean, you, you told us earlier about uh, some of the attributes of it. Were those uh, recognized uh, by, you know, in the community? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the cool part about uh, how we built the FAC-8 capability on the airplane in terms of, and by capability, I mean the air crew being trained and then the tools that we brought to bear, uh, in addition to time on station, multiple radios, um, th that was a, a great package for all of our sister services, but also for our uh, coalition partners. I got to work with the SAS. Um, they, we had been out there at Fallon together um, they were helping us with urban casts um, mm -hmm. and understanding how to deal with 
close proximity to civilians in built up areas and find stuff that didn't want to be found, you know, technicals that looked a little bit like a regular um, Toyota Hilux pickup truck, but actually had a, um, a 23 millimeter cannon on the back of it cruising around and, 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 and being intimidating for the local population. How do you find that thing? And so we were actually out there with the city of Fallon. Uh, I was running around with the SAS and in, in vehicles with radios trying to work on being able to talk on our air crew operating overhead so that they could uh, orient and quickly figure out where the, the potential target was. Um, out in Fallon? Yeah, out in Fallon. Cool. Yeah, so so just to be clear, you know, you've got a bad guy, quote unquote, a simulated bad guy. He's driving a, a Toyota truck past the Walmart and taking a right at the gas station. And we got it cruise above the city. Actually, you know, obviously no ordinance. We're not going to drop bombs on anybody here. But yeah. talking to him, talking, seeing, hey, there's the bad guy. OK, let's do a simulated run, yep. you know, or something to that effect. Wow. And, and we also got to work with the SEALs a lot because we were deploying with SEAL platoons uh, on the carrier uh, back in 94, 96 timeframe, going into Bosnia and stuff. And so working with them to provide their close air support capability, they only received limited training on emergency close air support control. Um, so it was a lot easier for them to actually link up with us so that we could be that uh, extension for them. And you know, we worked with uh, the the local units there in Virginia Beach um, to provide them capability, you know, on on uh, short notice, and and really help them with their training as well as uh, deployed as well. Hmm. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. So anybody who doesn't know, there's a lot of seals right here in the Virginia Beach area where where we are. Right there, but uh, hey, um, so it, one one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, and I don't know if you have any experience with this, is the combat search and rescue mission. Did you have any experience with that? Well, uh, certainly training our air, our FAC A air crew because that's a natural extension being the rescue mission uh, commander uh, role uh, because you're doing all the coordination of the supporting fires as you are having your extraction package move across different checkpoints to get to the downed air crew, pick them up uh, in an opposed environment and get them out of there safely. So understanding that uh, mission, I mean, it's a, it, it's a pretty easy one for FAC A's. You didn't have to be a FAC A to be a, a rescue mission commander, but that was a natural designation if you were going to be in, if you were FAC A qualified and you happen to be part of a strike package that you would be the RMC if they, uh, if they needed it. Yeah. So I, and if I remember right, that was not part of the FAC A syllabus back then. It was just something we picked up and did after the fact. And right. uh, like, I remember when we did Desert Fox, I was part of that. And, uh, you know, we, we banged off the front end, went, dropped some bombs, came back. And uh, then the rest of the night, you know, I was the alert 15 hanging in the ready room as the CSAR RMC, just in case somebody got shot down and yep. we were just waiting to go. So uh, I know that was something we did quite a bit. And there was a lot of training to it. Um, and I, I, I personally thought it was a pretty complicated mission because, uh, again, you're, you're, you're coordinating a whole bunch of different, you would, you would have not only the, uh, the concept of strikers, but you're trying to get this, the, the objective is to find the downed air crew, which may not be co-located, uh, and then 
push in, get some helicopters or ground forces there to secure them, get them, bring them out. Meanwhile, you've got threats coming in on the ground or in the air. And so you'd have a fighter escort, maybe shoot the fighter escort to engage them. And then you got a ground troops in. So you bring in some cast players. I mean, you had the whole thing when you were running that. And I remember thinking that it was, I personally found it pretty complicated, uh, very rewarding, but very complicated to do. Uh, never did it in real time, just uh, just in training and and as an alert, though. Yep. Cool. Bio, what else we got? Do you think we've covered uh, uh, who's doing the FAC-A mission now? Is it is it, uh, we already said F-18Fs, or E-models doing it, or just the Fs? So there was, a, there was a big discussion after the success that we had with Kosovo, because we had several of our FAC-A trained crews from uh, VF-14 and 41 got several silver stars for their, their work over there in Kosovo as FAC-As. Nice. Um, Man, that's a nice award. Yeah, I mean, it, it validated the syllabus, it validated the training, it validated the um, the use of FAC-A from the sea. Um, and, and then it was, okay, how do we refine this? How do we expand this? How do we make it better for the next generation of you? And at the time, there was a discussion, well, um, we've got all, you know, how do we get more FAC-As in the squadrons? Um, because the syllabus is is long and it's as we talked about before, it takes a lot of uh, coordination and, and and resources to make somebody like that. Well, over time we had the instructors rolling back into squadrons who had been instructing and could they teach the air crew themselves organically? And we made the determination, well, we'll let them train through the first eight missions, but the grad hop had to be done from a standardization perspective by a current FAC-A at the weapons school that would come in and do that final flight. Um, that was, I think, a, a good concession meeting uh, middle ground to increase the volume of those, uh, of those air crew coming through with the qualification. We also made it an AQD. So just like Top Gun has DB7 for their, uh, to designate an additional duty qualification on someone's uh, service yeah. record, Oh, an ADQ. Or ADQ, additional duty qualification, AQD. Oh. Okay. There's, all yeah. right. Good. I forgot that term. You mean that's that on that piece of paper that comes out that says all the things you're qualified to do? Correct. Correct. So FNEC A became an official? AQD. Correct. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yep. So um, there's, a, you know, the formal syllabus uh, getting designated for that, and then a certain alloc- number of air crew that are qualified in a deploying squadron. You know, that model firmed up there after the um, after our initial success with Kosovo. And then uh, it's where the program is today. I have not been keeping tabs on it recently on uh, on where they progressed, but you know, the, the need for that capability remains. Um, even though we are looking at the potential peer fight today, there's still that detailed coordination of fires in close proximity to your own forces where all of those techniques are brought to bear. Um, dynamically. So uh, for that reason, I, I think we will continue to see fat A's from the sea for quite a while. Awesome. Excellent. Good to know. Good to know. Man, PK, well, this has been a, a great, a great interview and episode. You taught me a lot more than I ever knew about fat A. I hope, I think our, our viewers are going to enjoy it also. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. This has been a great, great discussion. And uh, I think uh, I fully expect that when we post this one, we're going to have quite a few follow up questions that we're going to have. We might have to address. Um, One last thing before we go, PK, what what keeps you busy these days? What are you doing? 
So I've been with uh, uh, Cubic Corporation for the last almost four years, uh, and we're working on uh, uh, LVC for training. So live virtual constructive training, synthetic inject to live. Um, so if you think about our current threat challenges that we face, um, our physical training ranges do not support that because of our expanded weapons capabilities as well as the threats. So what kind of environment do you need to train authentically? And, and that's a combination of having live aircraft working with virtual participants, folks and trainers, simulators, and constru against constructives and with constructives, both air-to-air -air and air-to-ground against those advanced mission threads. So we're now connecting live aircraft. We just did this in September, actually, at Pax River. We had live Super Hornets connected with uh, F-35 virtual participants working cooperatively with a MH-60 Romeo Toft or Tactical Operational Flight Trainer at NAS Jacksonville connected across the Navy's continuous training environment, all working cooperatively to target a uh, constructive surface threat out there and being able to do end-to-end -end mission threads uh, like with the, the uh, long-range anti-ship missile. Uh, so those are the things that we're now moving into from a training perspective. And there are vestiges of the kind of environment we had to create for the FACA program built in there because you have to simulate some stuff. And to the degree that the air crew who are flying live believe that they are in that environment, that is the realism that you need so that you can make sure that cognitively they mm -hmm. are doing all the right things at the right times in pursuit of their mission success. Yeah, so that that's makes what we've been working on lately. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. That makes training a lot more effective, a lot more valuable. Cool. Mm -hmm. yep. That's great. If you're a Tomcat fan, you won't want to miss this. The F-14's first major big screen appearance was in the science fiction adventure, The Final Countdown, which came out in 1980. And in our next episode, we interview a Tomcat pilot who flew the big fighter in that classic film. It's gonna be published on, of course, December 7th. So don't miss it. All right, well, gentlemen, this has been an incredibly, uh, I, I learned quite a bit. We talked about some stuff that I've forgotten about and, uh, PK, I am impressed with your ability to bring back some of the memories and the details that you brought out in this conversation today. This has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I appreciate you having having you out, and uh, we'll definitely. Uh, uh, I expect that we're going to have a couple of questions that we'll have to circle back and and uh, get in touch with you on because I might not know the answer, Bio might not, but I bet amongst all of us, we know somebody who does. All right, so uh, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you to all the listeners for tuning into the F-14 TomCast. Wow, that was some interview. It was a lot more substantial than I expected it would be. And PK is the personification of a subject matter expert. I mean, besides talking about FAC A and all that great flying stuff, he talked about a lot of Navy fighter and Marine Corps fighter training programs and other information. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, we'd like to invite you over to the Fighter Pilot Podcast merchandise store. To get there, go to www.fighterpilotpodcast.com and click on shop. Once you're there, I'd love to invite you to take a look at our new ugly Christmas sweatshirt in support of the holiday season coming up. Uh, so you can get the, that sweatshirt priced at $40 to $42, depending on your size. While you're there, you might also want to consider getting the coffee mug or the ball cap, my personal favorites. So again, fighterpilotpodcast.com and click on shop. As always, thanks for listening to the F-14 TomCast. We hope you'll keep checking us out for future episodes and tell your friends. Thank you.
You've been listening to the F-14 TomCast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14TomCast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.